The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Hi, Krista. Hi, Michelle. How are you? This is Krista. She's been with us before, one of my all-time favorites, and she's so sweet to come back again. I think she will enjoy this case because it involves not only an interesting story, but also some community issues that I think Krista will be into. This is the case of Deborah Lyles. You know, it didn't get that much attention, this case, and I'm not sure why, because it's pretty interesting. Well, I'm going to start at the beginning, because this story, I think, is best told linearly. Okay. Deborah and Mike Lyles were high school sweethearts, and they got married shortly after high school, and they raised their one, two, three, four, five children in Jacksonville, Florida. And they're busy. So that so she stayed home to do that because that's a lot of humans to raise. And they just look like the sweetest family. I mean, she eventually became the beloved local music teacher for the public schools. And she was also the children's choir director at their church. Just everyone adored her. Everyone's favorite teacher, music teacher. And the dad, Mike, just kind of seemed like the everyone's 80s dad. So this is the mid-80s, and they move into this house in Jacksonville. He worked at a bank, and then he helped run a labor company. And they raised all of these children in a ranch-style home. But it was almost like a Spanish ranch-style home in Jacksonville. And it was dubbed the castle. I mean, it's not huge, ornate, anything like that. But it, I think it's because it was white, and it was kind of big and... They love their house. They love their neighborhood. So one day in 1993, Debbie was home all alone when there was a knock on the door. And she opens the door and it's this young man and he says he's looking for work. He wants to, he offered to do some yard work. But in the middle of all that, he shoves her into the house. He starts beating her. So she's like, look, let me get you what I have. She gave him, I think, her wedding ring. She gave him some money, but he continues to beat her and choke her. And he eventually ties her up with her own purse strap and a vacuum cord. To me, that visual of like, oh, hey, mom, like, was she cleaning her house? Like, he took her purse and her vacuum cord and ties her up. She doesn't die, though. She's a bloody mess. But thankfully, she survives. And when she was eventually found, 
She was covered in the blood. It was a pretty violent beating, and she was covered in blood. And the police say she was asking for a hug. Oh, I know. She wanted a hug. I know, Deborah. The Lyles family decided they were going to stay in that home regardless, despite that vicious attack. This was a very special place for them. It's where they raised their children, and they wanted to be part of that community. I mean, they continued to have stuff stolen around their property. I think like CDs would be stolen out of the car. Maybe a car was stolen, but I could be making that up. I know an entire gazebo was stolen out of their backyard. That's easy to steal. I know. I'm like, how does that work? Is that one of those moments you walk in your backyard? You're like, wait, was there ever a gazebo here? It reminds me of like the senior prank where they put the Volkswagen bug on top of the third store. And you're like, wait, how did that get up there? How does one steal a gazebo skills? The man who had beat Debbie up, his name was Curtis Head. And this was far from his first crime. His rap sheet included 16 arrests, 14 felony convictions, and two parole violations. Curtis. I should tell you a little bit more about the Lyles. Like, they're church-going people. Debbie was known to preach the parts of the Bible about forgiveness and being charitable. And so I think this kind of puts them in a tough position because they, they love their community. They're very much the type of people who would forgive for this crime. They would consider the, the, the childhood and the, the difficult times that this Curtis had gone through to get there. But then we find out that Curtis Head is being considered only six months into his life sentence for what he did to Debbie. He's being considered for early parole. And he had just been released early from a 30-year sentence and was only out of prison for 56 days when he attacked Debbie. Obviously, Debbie and Mike aren't having it. They traveled to the state capitol to make sure they were heard. And, I mean, they're a very compassionate, forgiving couple, but he had literally, like, he's not the guy to let out because of overcrowding. Like He clearly needs something else, right? right? There's something needs to happen there. He's sure. trying to guarantee himself a long prison sentence, if not forever, forever. in prison. Ultimately, Curtis Head is not released, and I think that's a good thing. But it was a jolting probability because I mean, they don't know, is he going to come back for them? And is he going to do this to someone else? So ultimately, the possibility of parole was denied. But this also inspired Mike to become president of the local chapter of Stop Turning Prisoners Out. So here's where you see what must have fomented conflicting feelings for the Lyles family, because naturally... This organization supported laws that would have disproportionately harmed the black community. But the Lyles family were very anti-racism. In fact, the main reason they stayed in the home, despite the additional burglaries after Debsey's assault, was because they didn't want to be part of the white flight. They didn't want to be part of the legacy of racism. So it was complicated, but we have to also remember this was personal. They got her this time, son. That's the message that Debbie's son, Gerald, heard from his dad on March 23rd, 2017. In an unbelievable, tragic repeat of history, Debbie had been attacked again. So it was about 24 years after the first attack, Debbie was again home alone in the castle when a 24-year-old man named Adam Lawson Jr., crawled through an open window or an open door we're not sure and he tried to hide but he was soon spotted by Debbie 
And at that point, he could have left, he could have run, he could have done anything other than the horrific thing he actually did do next. She grabbed a golf club to defend herself. He ripped it out of her hand and chased her like a horror film. He chases her down the hall into the kitchen where he proceeded to beat her so violently with that club that he shattered her skull and her jaw. And then, of course, he pillages the house. He stole everything he could find of value, multiple TVs and, you know, everything that was there because he had time now. He grabbed a bunch of frozen food, too, which I don't know what to do with that. And he loaded all of these goods into their Buick and he drove away, took a lot of stuff. But who cares? He left her there dead. And in this time, it wasn't the police who found Debbie. It was her husband of about 40 years. He walked in. He noticed the freezer door was open. Then he saw the club, the massive, massive pools of blood. I mean, when someone's beaten in that fashion, like you get blood spatter. So there's cast off every time it's lifted up, it casts off to the ceiling. And then the spatter, when it when it hits the person, it spats out. It's horrifying. I've seen more crime scene photos than I need to. And it's it is it's like someone takes a paintbrush and just twirls it around. And that's what this poor guy comes home to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of their five children, everyone gets notified. They're all able to make it to the house just as her body's being removed in a body bag. But then they can't go in because it's a crime scene. So what they did instead is they they scoured the neighborhood for cameras. And with the police, they were able to piece together the movements of the Buick, including it pulling into the trailer park where Lawson lived. Gotta put the frozen food away, I suppose. He was arrested after bloody shoes and a handgun were found in his trailer, and they ended up with more than enough evidence to charge him. The family's destroyed. I mean, I don't even need to get into some of the things that they were saying about what they went through at this time. Every member of this family is present for Lawson's court appearances. And, you know, one guy they saw come in was all beaten up and they'd hoped that was him. They hoped that, like, Debbie had fought hard enough to injure him, but it wasn't him. Who ends up coming in is this teeny tiny guy. He's quite little. And that frustrated Mike Lawson. He's like, I'm a widow because of that shrimp. But while they were there, they learned that Debbie suffered a lot more than they'd originally anticipated. They kind of hoped that she'd been knocked out maybe by the first the first blows. But then the prosecutor comes running down the hall and he said, Get, you know, guess what? We can pursue the death penalty should we want to. Because the medical examiner noted that the blood vessels around Debbie's eyes were ruptured, meaning she was strangled in addition to beaten. That then elevates the killing to quote-unquote, especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel. So they can go after the death penalty. But it gets worse. One of the daughters later saw the crime scene photos. She said her mom was in a giant pool of blood. Her ear was basically severed, brain matter exposed, eyes black and blue, and fists clenched in a giant pool of blood. So I'm like, okay, I don't know if I could see that. No. Uh, No. Yeah. No. So they're in the middle of all of this and having to, to, you know, be in at all these court appearances. But then it gets a little trickier for the Lyles family because Adam Lawson, the killer, said he would plead guilty if there was no death penalty on the table. So now they have a big decision to make. Um, one of the members, the youngest son, Gerald, is categorically against the death penalty for principle, out of principle. But they're offered this thing called restorative justice. Have you heard of 
restorative justice? I have, but I would like for you to explain it in case my definition of it is incorrect. I I figured you'd be the type who had heard of it just Mm -hmm. because of kind of what you like to read and what you're interested in. Restorative justice is an approach to justice where one of the responses to a crime is to organize a meeting between the victim and the offender. And sometimes, you know, with lawyers and maybe other people in the community, the goal is for them to share their experiences of what happened, to discuss who was harmed by the crime and how, and to create consensus for what the offender can do to repair the harm. It, it, restorative justice seeks to include the victim's family in the justice process, the survivors, because often they don't get to participate. They don't get to ask questions. And usually the families want answers. So it's an opportunity to get together with the killer and talk. I saw a headline just yesterday about a family, and I didn't read the article, but the family saying that the person who killed their mother received the death penalty, and that made them, they were saying that made the crime feel even worse, that that instead of giving them some relief, but I can see how being a part of the process, having those conversations could be healing in some regard. Well, and I think that's sometimes what people want. Like, Most victims say they want what they want most from the criminal justice system itself is safety for themselves and for their communities. Mm -hmm. Some want vengeance. Someone want some want to see their like the criminal go down for sure. Mm -hmm. But the people who take part in the restorative justice tend to believe that harsh punishment just creates more problems and destruction. Really, most of them who participate really want answers. Because once the ball's rolling in the trial, the criminal proceedings, you don't get to talk to you don't get to talk to the person who killed your family member. You can make a victim's impact statement, but mm-hmm. you don't get to ask any questions. That's not allowed. They're not forced to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you want them to feel that accountability. You want them, you know, it's one thing to have a court impose upon you a, a punishment, but you also want that person to take accountability, to apologize, to say something. I don't know, but to admit that they did something wrong. Because so often they plead not guilty and then they're saying, oh, I didn't do it. Yeah, that's right. The accountability, that must be some sort of closure. I mean, not in a good way, but not that you feel any better. It doesn't bring your loved one back. But just that getting eyes on the vic- uh, on the perpetrator and making him say something to you so that yeah. you can understand. And while most of these people probably don't experience a lot of remorse, you know, you might have that exception of the person who did. So, I mean... I don't know. I don't know if I could do it. Some people say that it gives them more control over their own case. The victims more control over the um, the own case, the ability to communicate with this person who caused the pain and a chance to learn what happened during the crime and why. And for the Lyles family, they had some questions like, did our mom know she was going to die? And how did you carry the big TV out by yourself? Like, that's the kind of thing they're It's just bugging them. They want to know. This gets brought up, this opportunity to participate in this gets brought up. And after a lot of deep deliberation within the family, they decide to give it a try. Well, and this is a family who you said earlier that forgiveness was a big part of who they were. Yeah, yeah. It was an interesting juxtaposition because they were a very forgiving family, but they were also part of this this group that is against letting criminals out. But then again, oh, right. it was personal for them. You know, so I kind of understood why they're a little nuanced there. In theory, I'm all about forgiveness. In practice, maybe not so much. Right? It's, I mean, I don't know if I want that out. 
And also, they, I'm sure he looks at it like he was saving someone else's life because this guy, the original guy, uh, Curtis Head, had just been released from a violent crime. It took him only 56 days to commit another one. Yeah. So, you know, I, I agree that this is not cut and dry. Like, you can be all about forgiveness and redemption, but still want really dangerous people off the street. Right. So on the day the Lyles family was set to met with Adam Lawson, something went terribly wrong. And it's almost like the Lyles family was victimized again. In another room, while preparing to meet with the Lawsons, they're all there, everyone's there, ready to do it, but they're in separate rooms. Lawson just starts putting his head in his hands and shaking and panicking, saying, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, refusing to do it. He said something like, oh, after what I've taken from them, I can't. Mm -hmm. So he's just, he's nervous, that's the truth. Yeah, because he knows... This is scarier than than some judge sentencing you to life in prison or the death penalty. Actually facing the husband and children of this woman you brutally murdered. I I kind of feel like there isn't really a worse punishment than that. Like that's for somebody who does feel the consequences of their actions. Well, and it's, you can't, this is uncomfortable for you. I'm so sorry. Well, yes. (laughs) Yeah, like, too bad. Yeah, too. And I'm. This is gonna hurt. It's not gonna feel as scary as what Debbie went through when you were brutally beating her to death. But you might have to be a little uncomfortable, sir. So the lawyers basically said to him, like, "Do you realize what you're doing? Like, we cut a deal with this family. Death penalty's off the table, so that you can do this. And this is just a big f you." And he's just like, "Can't, can't do it. I can't do it." So after more than an hour trying to convince Lawson to to do this, the attorneys went to the Lyles family and they're just like, I'm so sorry. He just, he won't do it. He refuses. And he's almost catatonic now. And then somebody was like, oh, he just feels so bad. I'm like, I don't know if he feels so bad. I think the guy's a coward. The Lyles family was stunned. They felt like they had prepared for every possible outcome, that he'd be dishonest or insult their mother's memory or that even dad would get violent. These are words that they said in an article. But they had not prepared for the possibility that this jerk would back out. So then Mike's like, no, go back in there and try it again. Make him do this. And while they, while the attorneys went back in there, Mike Lyles and the, the five Lyles kids kind of just sat and talked about what are our options. One of them even made a flow sheet. And it's like, okay, the process of the trial, especially a death penalty trial, is grueling. And they would be spending their lives trying to make sure this guy was killed. Or worst case scenario, what if by some technicality he gets off, Lawson gets off and he could go kill somebody else? As a family, they decided we are going to let this lie. We'll exchange for life in prison. Maybe we'll try to meet him later behind bars. But what pissed the Lyles off the most was that this guy, in their words, was had the audacity to carry out such an extraordinarily violent murder, but just wouldn't simply sit down with them. And Mike Lyles is like, shouldn't he be forced? Like, you can sentence the man to lethal injection, but you can't force him to speak to us. He doesn't have to say anything. Just put him in the room with us. Just make him sit here with the six of us. They forced him to watch home videos. And he was just covering his eyes and going like this with his ears. Like the guy can dish it out, but cannot take it. 
everyone returned home and according to them this was more than just an oppor- like a missed opportunity it was such an it was another tragedy another letdown things really took a turn for the worse for mike after that botched meeting he still refused to move away from the home but he wasn't taking care of himself or the house he bought a dog for protection and also just a you know have a companion but like the dog had chewed up the whole couch where he was living he wasn't going anywhere wasn't doing anything he wrote a note to his children saying maybe we were the ones who were too open when we were played by the prospect of a conversation with Lawson. I can't imagine myself even experiencing happiness again outside of spending time with you and yours, he wrote. I know he is as close as a whisper. And then shortly after that, one of the children got a call. It was from someone from her father's victim advocacy group. And they'd noticed Mike hadn't shown up to any of the events over the weekend. So just like it had been before, the daughter drives up to the castle house, not knowing what she's going to find. But this time, it's her father. He lay dead on the couch, feet from where Debbie had been slain. And get this. The coroner gave, as Mike's official cause of death, broken heart syndrome. It's this stress-induced cardiomyopathy that's actually a thing, and in rare cases, it can be fatal. One of the daughters said, it's not a broken heart. It's restorative. This problem that we had with restorative justice is what killed our dad. So as much as restorative justice has worked for some people, it backfired and was horrible for the Lyles family. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Like, how do you ever trust anybody ever again? Jacksonville's an interesting place. Like many communities, it was designed to be segregated back when it was being planned. This becomes important when I tell you about a bit of research. Like, what does it mean to live in a community that was purposely designed this way? And what happens there? So there's this Great Depression era practice called redlining. And I'm just going to read it just almost exactly verbatim from... Like the definition I found online because it's complicated and I think they do a good job. I was horrified. I had no idea about this. For years during the Great Depression, the United States government created the Home Ownership Loan Corporation to help Americans purchase homes and help stimulate economic recovery. Neighborhoods and cities across the country were segmented and mapped based on perceived risk in lending. And that would guide the lenders into making decisions decisions about where and to whom to provide home mortgages. And that segmentation and mapping was the birth of redlining. So these perceived risks in lending were based both on financial and racial considerations. Yep. 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 As, yep. yep. So you know about this. As evidence, oh. have you heard about redlining? Yes. And um, at the town in which you and I grew up, uh, there's stuff coming to light about clauses in your mortgage about who you can and cannot sell your house to. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. that is disgusting. I have to go back and look at my parents. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if they still have a copy of their mortgage that they signed in 1974, but my guess is it's a part of their mortgage. Well, so this is so horrifying because if you actually look 
like it's explicitly radicalized or racialized language in the official documents, like you're saying, yeah. like in the mortgages. Yeah. Segmentation via residential security maps identified neighborhoods that were considered low risk, which is like the neighborhoods you and I are talking about, labeled A and B, moderate risk, which is C, and they would make loans there. But the neighborhoods deemed too high, labeled D, they would not lend at all. Right. So as a result, predominantly black, indigenous and people of color communities were placed in the red mm-hmm. or too high risk zone, nearly mm-hmm. eliminating any access to mortgages or refinancing options or small home improvement loans. And that's how it was termed a red lined neighborhood. And it was deemed justifiable by the Federal Housing Administration at the time. Fabulous. It was alleged that wherever African-Americans purchase homes, property values were guaranteed to fall. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. This wasn't Mm -hmm. that long ago. No. And actually, we I have a friend who was selling their house in the Bay Area and Mm -hmm. they were advised to take down any pictures in their house, any evidence that would show that they were people of color because they had their house appraised. And they got a very low appraisal. And so then they took down all evidence of who they were and they got the house reappraised for $200,000 more. That's gross. That's gross. This was like two years ago. That's current, current events. And my children's school did a great job discussing all of BLM. and, And I had this great opportunity to talk to them about how I didn't realize how all the systems I benefit from really oppress other people. Like we've had really open conversations about that. Yeah. Uh, I can't even specifically in Jacksonville, redlining was implemented in 1937 and it designated these areas as too high risk or hazardous. And um, it's kind of like areas like Northwest Jacksonville, historic East side and many others. These places had almost no market value. And nobody would invest there. Mortgages were not available to homeowners of color. And as a result, they could only hope to sell their house and people, you know, for cash at a significantly reduced value. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a cycle, horrible cycle. Of course, Mm -hmm. the property values all plummet. So while Jacksonville's first zoning map was completed in 1930 before redlining, it was eerily similar to the redline maps that were to come. The zoning map designated restricted and unrestricted industrial areas that prescribed allowable land uses. And almost all of these communities of people with color were placed in those unrestricted industrial zones. So they're they're being put next to incinerators and factories and undesirable developments being built like literally next to their homes, further depressing their property values. And these unhealthy living conditions are they're there today. It's still there. So redlining took effect officially seven years later, but it just further legitimized it and perpetuate it perpetuated the existing racial segregation. And it's just it's horrible. It's part of also why there's so much um, so many different health issues within communities of color that live in low income areas. Part of it is the like just the pollution that you're exposed to if you live right next door to a factory or or whatever that might be. Yeah, an incinerator. Probably not so good for your health. I mean, these were all happening. This practice continued for another 30 years during a time when Jim Crow laws were also prolonging racial Mm -hmm. segregation. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 outlawed segregation in housing. The results are significant. There's just racialized gaps, and it's still 
there. And, you know, today's Jacksonville's most challenged and under-resourced communities are precisely those that were deemed unlendable by redline maps nearly 100 years ago. Yeah. You know, and the other thing is in those communities, there's no money being pumped into the schools. Those are the most underserved populations. Uh-huh. It's just a vortex of potential influences of bad outcome, right? Uh-huh. Correct. What does that mean? Because we can all think of a lot of reasons why somebody coming up, growing up in a impoverished area where there aren't resources for your school, perhaps there's increases in crime and drug use. Like we can think of lots of reasons why these criminals could have become criminal. For example, Adam Lawson, the guy who eventually killed Debbie Lyles, he had a really difficult life. As a young boy, he'd ingested the drugs that his mother would leave out. His mom was constantly incarcerated. He stole to feed his drug habits. Like he had a bad life, but it's so easy to be like, okay, well, criminals live in that town then they're raising other criminals like there's poverty there's there's crime there's drugs there's the education is horrible but there's actually one influence there's an influence outside of your home life like we always think of your environment as your home life and your school life but it's the, actually the neighborhood you grow up in mm-hmm. even if your home life is perfect is more influential on your brain than we ever knew wow yes. wow like that makes so much sense okay yeah. tell me more They never thought about that because it's hard to, you know, unravel this ball of rubber bands of we know poverty causes problems. We know drug use causes problems. We know these shitty schools causes problems. You never think of it just the neighborhood itself. And here's what it means. So much of this research was born from the Chicago Project on Human Development. And that's, and I'm going to read just from their straight definition so I get it right. It's an interdisciplinary study of how families, schools, and neighborhoods affect child and adolescent development. It was designed to advance the understanding of the developmental pathways of both positive and negative human social behaviors. In particular, the project examined the pathways to juvenile delinquency, adult crime, substance abuse, and violence. At the same time, the project also provided a detailed look at the environments in which these social behaviors take place by collecting substantial amounts of data about urban Chicago, including its people, its institutions, and resources. So the project's design consisted of two major components. The first was an intensive study of Chicago's neighborhoods, particularly the social, economic, organizational, political, and cultural structures, and the dynamic changes that would take place to those structures over time. The second component was a series of coordinated longitudinal studies. Longitudinal means over time that followed over 6,000 randomly selected children, adolescents, and young adults to examine the changing circumstances of their lives and the personal characteristics that might lead them toward or away from a variety of antisocial behaviors. After examining thousands of children, they learned that if there is a homicide on your block, four days before standardized testing, then your reading scores and vocabulary scores drop significantly, like 10 points, two thirds of a standard deviation. That's a big drop. That is a significant effect between a very significant effect between homicide exposure and reading scores. How could it not? I mean, think of the stress that that would cause. I mean, anybody but a small child And to put that into perspective, Adrian Rain in, you know, my Bible that I'm always looking at, the um, 
anatomy of violence. He says that's as strong as the ability of a mammogram to detect breast cancer. Like that's a strong effect. And how do we get there? There's a couple of ways you think it's constantly living in vigilance, right? You're thinking I could be victimized. Somebody I knew was just victimized. Even if your own home life is great, it's stressful. You walk to school and be harmed. But there's another way that's actually happening too. It's actually changing brain structures. A bunch of other studies. I could not believe how many studies have been done on this. Additional researchers have shown, and, and as teachers already know, that school children exposed to neighborhood violence can have a tougher time in learning, of course. They experience more stress and depression, like you were just saying, how stressful, than their identical peers growing up in safe neighborhoods. Exposure to community violence, it really is a significant public health issue. I mean, it's it's long been associated with poor cognitive performance, but they now see it's a risk for psychiatric illness and violence. So it seems intuitive. I always thought, well, it's too hard to disentangle. You live in a violent neighborhood. There's just too many factors. But these studies are showing that the risk for future violence, just because you were exposed in childhood to community violence, it's there, even if you don't have any of the other risk factors. A separate study in Los Angeles of adolescents looked at the neural correlates of community violence using children from moderate to high crime neighborhoods. Violence exposure negatively correlated with measures of SES, which is um, socioeconomic status, IQ, and gray matter volume. So violence up, all of those are down. So with violence up, your socioeconomic status is down. That's to be expected. IQ is down and gray matter volumes down. Okay, they went above and beyond that. They controlled for the effect of SES. So now we're going to eliminate the socioeconomic status. So now it's those of us who are the lowest socioeconomic status they're being controlled for in the group. Let's look again. Still, violence exposure negatively correlates with IQ and gray matter volume in the regions of the brain involved with high-level cognitive function and autonomic modulation. So this is evidence that the frontal brain regions, which I talk about all the time, that are involved in cognition and affect appear to be selectively affected by this exposure to community violence, even in the healthy, non-delinquent adolescents who are not the direct victims. Their brains are changing just because they're hearing about it. And get this, that's just showing the frontal part of the brain. Different studies have shown that there's also reductions in the amygdala and hippocampus in these youth who are exposed to community violence. So those are the, you know, the, emo- the limbic system, the emotional system, the memory, the right from wrong, all of that empathy, that all lives there. I would have thought, how are you going to measure this? Because there's, how are you going to control for what's happening in the, the home? How are you going to control what's happening, you know, at the school? The study is so huge that they're able to control for this stuff. And even the kids who have no risk factors for this type of brain change are having it. But I was like, wow, they finally done it. They finally found a way to study just being plopped into a violent neighborhood and hearing about the violence. It affects African-Americans more than other races. The researchers estimate that 15% of African-American kids spend a month a year in trauma. It's not just direct exposure to violence, such as being abused in your home, that's causing these brain problems. It's the dark effect of the neighborhood alone 
that changes your brain and your life's trajectory. Plus, you look like the people who are being victimized. So you feel you identify, you know, this is on your block. It's your neighbor. It's maybe somebody you knew. So it's interesting because people create the violent neighborhood, but then the violent neighborhood goes on to create more violent people. It's kind of this weird cycle. And now some of these researchers are teaming up with other organizations to create trauma-based interventions in these neighborhoods. So it's going to exist at school. It's going to exist in the home. Like They are setting up infrastructures for these types of high-violent neighborhoods. What happens is these kids present later. They present in late teens and 20s as having, when they're younger, it's oppositional defiance disorder or conflict disorder, and then it's antisocial personality disorder. But really, you're in some of the cases, it's trauma. So what they're trying to do is catch it before it looks like that um, and, and kind of integrate into the community some trauma-based treatment for these especially young kids. I mean, these are young kids. So hopefully offsetting some of the biological effects that we're seeing from being exposed to the violence. And so what does that look like in a, in a school? Do they, are they starting in kindergarten? Is it like, so, you know, I'm a former elementary school teacher. And so I always think about like, what are these things that, I mean, I think about it now with COVID, like how are we dealing with our kids' um, mental health issues that are, we're seeing universally across, um, you know, all ages and socioeconomic statuses and everything. So, but I think about with a program like that, are they starting in kindergarten? Is it, is there a program that's like a weekly program, a monthly program? Is it something that they um, are doing in general on a regular basis? And then do they have intensive therapies or, or, or when something traumatic does happen in their neighborhood? Yeah, I don't know. It's all kind of in its nascency right now. Some of these studies just happen. So I think that it's going to take boots on the ground. Um, you know, one of the psychologists I was reading about, he's like, I want trauma-based learning. I want trauma-based childcare. I want trauma-based everything. He basically wants to kind of uproot the curriculum in these schools to treat trauma out the gate. You just assume that you treat the trauma whether or not you know the exposure because you know if you live in that neighborhood, you're hearing about body slumped over. You're driving by body slumped over. You heard about your brother's friend getting killed. So he wants to kind of implement it at just a different type of program into all the schools. But let's not forget, that's one of the reasons I went through this whole red line stuff is to show those schools don't have resources. You know, like they're not the places with resources. This has to go, this is, I mean, this will have to be federally funded. There are resources in those schools, but those resources are spread so thin because there are so many extra needs in the, in those neighborhoods. And the other thing that I don't want to totally get into it, but a lot of them are in very large school districts, which have a lot of administration. There's a lot of additional costs at a high level. It might not necessarily be filtered down to an individual classroom. And that's where, um, you know, school districts, have to take responsibility for the children in their classes. But it does seem like the larger the school district, the more likely they are to have a very top-heavy administration and money that is that is not being filtered down to the kids for specific programs as much as it should be. You want those dollars in the classroom. 
And that's, I remember talking to you about that. And I've talked to other people about it is that, you know, if you take this, the percentage of the, the, the funding that that school has, the percentage that actually makes it into like something the child can really, it's in their classroom, they can touch it or hear it or learn from it is small. And I imagine a program like this that's new based on new research is not the top of the list. Right. And people would say, oh, it's, it's soft science, right? It's not important. Right. Well, except the MRIs are really showing some good right. stuff. Well, I, think that's yeah, why exactly. they, I think that's why they moved from saying, oh, these kids are, you know, having yeah. low yeah. test scores. Oh, they seem depressed or anxious. I think that's why they're like, you know what? Let's bring in some freaking MRIs and let's show you that you mm-hmm. are changing their brain structures over time with, by well, exposing them to violence. When, when you have a school district that is a low performing school district, what ends up happening is the state comes in and they are like, okay, your, your test scores are way too low. So you need to adopt this curriculum. And they become more and more strict about the curriculum that the teacher is supposed to, is supposed to be teaching. So that my final year teaching, I had, I taught second grade. I had one kid in my class who could read very well on a fifth grade level and comprehend and everything. And I had another kid who literally had no concept of number. If you asked her to, to hand you two markers, she couldn't do that. She had probably never been, it, she's a mystery. We don't know what her history was. Like probably she hadn't been in school before. So when the state comes in and says, you're going to be teaching this way with these strict rules and these, these, you know, it's basically a script that they want you to read. Then you're, you're, you're like, teaching to three kids in the middle and this kid who is, you know, reading on the fifth grade level is bored out of her mind. And this kid who, you know, doesn't have any idea what the alphabet is, is also not being served. And so, you know, there has to be a way that, that when you have a low performing school district, the rules tend to be, tend to focus solely on that academic, 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 without looking at there are so many other factors that are leading to low performance. That's such good information because we hear all the time, teach to the test. Like the teachers are not teaching anymore. They're just teaching to the test. But what you're saying makes so much sense, especially considering what we're talking about here. It's, wait, it's not just they're not memorizing the information or learning the skills. They have actual biological things happening to them, trauma that's going on. Maybe they're hungry. Now we've started addressing school lunches, Mm -hmm. but it's not just the academics that are driving the low performance. Right. I stopped teaching the year that No Child Left Behind was really kicking into high gear. I don't know that I could have done it, you know, with trying to do this kind of scripted program. and And my aunt taught for many years, 30, 40 years in a low performing district And she had to show her lesson plans every week. I will teach the sound ah. I will use the words cat and rat and sat. She would have to write all of this out, you know, in her 35th year of teaching. And so it just seems like now you're taking away the skill of the teacher to modify her lessons for the needs of each child in his or her classroom, right? Because each child really has individual needs and it's really hard to reach those individual needs to teach in different learning styles when you are addressing everybody in one way. And so by ignoring 
this problem, right? That trauma has literally affected their brain. Now we're, we're, there's no time in our day to address that because I'm required to spend four hours of my day teaching reading and two hours teaching math. And that's all I have time for, you know, like sometimes I feel like we're putting the cart before the horse with education, because like you've said, I think on this podcast, you can't learn if you're hungry, you can't learn if your brain is in stress mode, right? Haven't mm-hmm. you said that? No, you can't because the cortisol and adrenaline make you forget shit. Exactly. We're focused only today on the ah, 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 ah sound, but I've like my neighbor was murdered yesterday. Right. I'm not learning I'm not anything. Here. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm not, not learning here. anything today. I'm not here. And tomorrow I'm going to be really like foggy because I'm recovering from that hypervigilant state. And I mean, I would love to see some sort of federal program come in and say like, look, okay, your crime is at this level. Okay. Then we provide after school therapy. Like everyone has to stay after school. Yeah. It's free. You get an extra hour of childcare and everything's trauma-based. And you know, it's like the teachers get trained. They don't have time, as you say. And I feel like constantly we're asking for more from the yeah. parents, from the teachers, from everybody. We're asking for more, but maybe as you say, we've been focused on some of the wrong stuff. I have horrible handwriting. My ex-husband has horrible handwriting. Krista, I think you may have been in the classroom, but Mrs. Meekum held oh. my, I wasn't, I wasn't in her class. That was not my teacher. I don't, I was in Mrs. Owen's class. I don't know why, but she held up my paper. Oh. I must've done something, you know, we must be switching classrooms around. I'd, she's like, class, I want to show you an example no. of how, of the worst handwriting we have in, in our grade. It's Michelle Ward and her handwriting is atrocious. Can anyone spell atrocious? And I was like, my head in shame, lowered in shame. But it's like teacher of the year. Who fucking cares? So I look at my little tiny boy and he's only eight and his handwriting is atrocious. And they're like, work on it, work on it, work on it. I'm like, no, I don't care if he can read, spell, comprehend. I care. But the fact that it looks like hieroglyphics is just makes him related to the people he's related to my handwriting to this day. I can't do it. I don't have small motor coordination. My brain doesn't work like that. My mom always said, oh, it's because you're just supposed to meant to be a doctor. Like (laughs) I I don't they want it so focused on. And I'm like, first of all, who writes anymore anyway? It'll come. Yeah. One day he won't sleep in my bed anymore either. Yeah. It'll come. Yeah, it'll come. Exactly. It'll come. One of my struggles is always I can get on here and talk about a crime. And that's what all the other true crime podcasts do. But it is my job to go way deeper, to find a cause or a potential cure. Otherwise, I feel like you've wasted your time. You could listen to any podcast about crime. So the takeaways here is we need to pay attention to the fact that just the violence exposure alone matters. You can have a high IQ, come from a great family. I mean, it affected the Lyles' kids, whether they know it or not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whether they know it or not. Yeah. So just being aware. So all of us little like soldiers out there, now we know this is another cause of crime. Sheer exposure to neighborhood crime. Um, Number two, if all y'all who are in administration are looking to change school systems or how it all works, like Krista, put this on your radar and- Lastly, my heart goes out to the five children of the Lyles family. This is to have this, this to be victimized three times in these horrible ways. is just, it was an un- unfortunate, difficult story to read. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Yeah. 
Do you have anything else to add? Any other programs? You, I love that you know about school systems and stuff because I don't. Ugh, frustrating. I mean, I am a huge, my kids are at public school. I am a huge public, yeah. public school advocate. I'm a PTA president. And um, are you the current PTA president, Krista? I, I am. Oh, you were. <laughs> of course I'm I proud of you. Of course oh, you are. Oh, no. Sucker. Just a sucker. Um, but the administrators at our school will tell you that I am in there whenever I see something that really bugs me. I'm not quiet about it because, um, yeah, because these things are important. And as a PTA president, it is my job to be an advocate for children. That is the, the, the role of the PTA is to be an advocate for children. So personally, in my own school where my own daughter goes, but also, you know, universally, as an as a group, the PTA is the largest advocacy group for children. So they might get a letter from me. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> you know, I um, you can that. you can help me put together some statistics so that oh, this is something yeah. that we can advocate for in our schools. And just to to think about like what we can do. There was there was actually um, a homicide down the street from us when um, my littlest one was in first grade. Uh, her classmate's father killed his mother in front of him. Killed the child's mother or yes. his own mother? Oh. Yes. And then put kid in the car, dropped him off at his mother's house and then, or at, his, at grandma's house and then went and killed himself. Um, but this happened literally down the street from us and to somebody in my little one's class. Um, first oh grade God. class. I don't, I don't know what was said after that and the trauma yeah. that was, you know, that kid that ended up moving with his grandparents. So he's hasn't returned to our school, you know, since, since then. And, but anyway, yeah, just like what, what do we do when a tragedy occurs in our neighborhood? How do you handle that? Well, Krista, you and I growing up, we had at least two we had at least in our white, wealthy, obnoxious, like tell the listeners what you were telling me this this summer when we were talking about one of those homicides and what your teacher said to you. Yes. I wanted to know why I would love for you and I to talk about this crime on this podcast. I, know. I don't wanna I don't wanna hurt this young boy. He's not young now, he's now he's our age, but I always noticed that his mother wasn't ever coming to school. It was always his father. And Mrs. Catton was helping me <laughs> shove all my stuff into my backpack because I never clean it out. My car and my life is exactly the same. My <laughs> friends all joke. They're all like, hey, Michelle, we're cleaning out. Look at Auntie's backpack used to look like this. That's how it is. Executive so functioning. She's executive functioning. <laughs> How's your prefrontal lobe? I'm, you know, Mrs. Catton's trying to get it, shove it in there. And I, and I said to this little boy, I said, Norman, why is your mom never here? And Mrs. Catton, who was a wonderful, lovely, warm teacher, just goes, shh, shh, don't, don't ask him about that ever again. Just yeah. don't, we just don't talk about that. Yeah. And poor guy probably wanted to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I probably needed to with a nice friend. With, I mean, I was yeah, a good friend of people friend, who I right? didn't know. So uh, yeah, I didn't know him well and I wanted to, but yeah. So maybe we'll come on and talk about those crazy. Yeah. I mean, I've strangely been around a lot of homicides. It's weird. I, yeah, maybe I that's to, why I'm in this. I need to leave. <laughs> ah, I've been convicted of nothing. Krista, you're the best. Thank you. You're so You always welcome. add. You add. Like, I don't know anything about how the school districts work. 
It's just because um, I can't keep my mouth shut, Michelle. I feel like that's not true. I feel like that's not true. And you are definitely one of those where I know you're going to come on and tell me something that makes me feel smarter afterward. And I really appreciate it. <laughs> so thank Thanks you. Thanks for the ego boost. I needed that. This has been How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. And we will see you again soon. I'm hearing some background noise. Is that just... Wrestling? Is yeah. Is it for me? It sounds like somebody's like like working upstairs, like cleaning, like... No, the dog's asleep next to me. I don't know what that is. No, there's like another person. Heidi? Not... Was Heidi? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to scare the heck out of you. We're talking about a murderer. Like, I'm sorry. I'm going. I'm leaving. <laughs> How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H N. T-R-A-S-K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at hownottoraiseaserialkiller at gmail.com. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.